I'm Matt Dixon, and welcome to the Purple Patch Podcast. The mission of Purple Patch is to empower and educate every human being to reach their athletic potential. Through the lens of athletic potential, you reach your human potential. The purpose of this podcast is to help time-starved people everywhere integrate sport into life. And welcome to the Purple Patch Podcast. As ever, your host, Matt Dixon. And well, here we go again. If you care about performance, if you want to understand the mechanics of training, if you're invested in optimizing your training returns to yield best adaptations, today is for you. Because we welcome Dr. Steven Seiler to the show. He is a living legend in the world of sports science and training methodology. Now, many of you guys will know all about Dr. Seiler, perhaps from watching one of his many presentations or discussions around sports performance online. But if you haven't heard of him, this is a special, special treat for us. In today's discussion, we go through all of Stephen's background and his journey into becoming one of the world's most influential sports scientists. We unpack the premise behind polarized approach of training. We discuss season planning and how it is the most important thing an athlete can do while the whole time is grossly overrated. We get into gadgets, tools, metrics, as well as how to dial in the prescription of training. And we even have little natters about fasting, machine learning, AI, finding better health and energy through the principles of high performance. It is literally a do not miss. Now, before we get cracking, I want to provide a little bit of the formalities and outline of who this guy, Dr. Seiler, is. So, after growing up in the U.S. and earning his doctoral degree from the University of Texas, Dr. Seiler lived and worked in Norway for the last 20 years plus. He was a university teacher, researcher, and leader. He's the past vice rector of research and innovation and past dean of faculty of health and sports sciences at the University of Agda, which is a well-known institution in the field of sports science. While anchored in an academic environment, over the years he's also served as a research consultant and scientific advisor for a research foundation, various sports teams, a regional hospital and the Norwegian Olympic Federation. From 2014 to 2019, Professor Seiler served on the executive board of the European College of Sports Science, where he founded Elite Sport Performance Centre Special Interest Group in 2014. Over the last 15 years, Dr. Seiler has become internationally known for his research publications and lectures all around the organization of endurance training and intensity distribution, much of which we get into today. This work has included both descriptive and and experimental approaches investigating cyclists, rowers, cross-country skiers, orienteers, distance runners. It goes on and on. His work has influenced and catalyzed international research around training intensity as well as the polarized training model. Sila has published over 100 peer-reviewed publications and written over 100 popular science articles relating to exercise physiology and the training process. Phew, yes, I told you, it's really beefy. This one is a big one, but I promise you, you are going to love it. And because we want this to stand on its own two feet, we are going to bypass word of the week, 
We're also going to bypass ooh, the bleeding ECU so that we can really quickly get into the meat and potatoes. But just before we do, I do need to do a very quick squatty update because this week, quick and dirty as it is, I want to ask a couple of questions. We have had a flood of athletes requesting insights into our live and video on demand coaching that we recently launched. It seems that it's captured or peaked a little bit of the imagination for many folks. And so I want to give you the quick and dirty. The video on demand and live video coaching is, as it sounds, a quest to solve a big challenge. And that quest is to radically improve the remote coaching experience. Now, currently, much as you might ask, it is not a standalone Purple Patch program. Instead, it is infused and plugged onto all Purple Patch coach programs. It's only available to Purple Patch coached athletes via one-to-one coaching or, of course, our squad program. Now, the bones of this program are bike sessions, strength sessions, and what we label as self-care. Think about it as core, mobility, tissue health. And in essence, the video coaching is delivered in three ways. The first is that you can attend live, and in those sessions, you are getting bi-directional so that you're getting optimal feedback on not just how you're executing the training, but also on form, application, technique, and how you can take that training to outside riding, etc. You can also follow along solo at a time of your choosing. That's why it's on demand a little bit like Netflix, and you just get to follow the coaching cues. And finally, you also have the option to join what we call watch parties. That's where you join as a part of a group, a group of your friends maybe, And all of you are synchronized with the same video platform and then guided through that video platform via a Purple Patch coach. And that coach provides additional feedback, high accountability, and of course, lots of infused fun. Now, the premise is simple, and that is that we want you to not just train your physiology. Instead, we want you to train with intent. We want you to actually get better, become a better bike rider better physically, but also improvement of habits, posture, form, and an understanding of how you apply that and take it outside to real riding experience. And in many ways, it is, in all honesty, pretty groundbreaking. And so if you are interested and you would like to find out more, many of you guys have asked, I want to get involved. I want to try it. Great. We'll go and have a poke around at purplepatchfitness.com or perhaps better, reach out to us directly info at purplepatchfitness.com and let us know that you heard me rabbiting on on this show and we'd be happy to send you all of the insights a lot of the details but also answer any questions that you have it is a wonderfully timed program to help you as a backbone of your training for triathlon riding or even leveraging multi-sport training for improved running performance and so with that today that is our squatty update Now, what that means is that what you get to do right now is fasten your seatbelt, dial it in, because, ladies and gentlemen, it is Dr. Stephen Seiler, and it is, for today's very special episode, The Meat and Potatoes.
All right, guys. Yes, it is the meat and potatoes. And today we have a very special guest, as mentioned in the lead-in. Stephen Siler, thanks so much for joining us today. Well, thanks for the invitation. I'm incredibly excited. It's been a long time hoping that we could sneak you onto the show. And uh, and we have a lot to cover off, so I'm going to dive in. But as I do with with every guest... I think it's it's important for the listeners to have a little bit of a framework. Uh, I think most will have a deep appreciation of of who you are, but if you can, can we go back to to kick it off a little bit? Give us a little bit of your background, growing up, your family, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> yeah, well, I was born in Berkeley, California, in '65, but I ended up, you know, quickly. I have no memory of all that, although I like to claim it because uh, I think it's kind of cool, but. Uh, I grew up in the country. I, you know, I grew up, my grandparents had a farm and, and then my dad at 10, he moved us to Arkansas to take a job, built a house out in the country and didn't even have any neighbors. So I was messing about in the forest and finding crawdads and fossils and chasing and fishing and, and, you know, and so, and I went to a small school. And, and so I, I grew up in under conditions where I had to kind of entertain myself. And <laughs> so <laughs> I didn't, you know, I didn't live in a big neighborhood or anything like that. And, and so I'd take the bus to school and come home and then I'm by myself. Well, the long story short is I, you know, at school I did sports and, and I was a good student, but I love sports. But then at home I had a laboratory under the stairs literally i mean you know i was a, like lived under the stairs and and i would go out and, and like you know grab some pond water or something because we lived by a pond where i'd fish and then i'd sure. bring it in and i had a microscope and i would look for creatures and so i just you know i i kind of from an early age loved science although i don't know if i knew that i thought of it as science and i loved sports and so uh, I just never knew that those two would come together, but they did, uh, at a certain point, And I discovered that I could, I could put them together and try to make a career out of that. So that's, you know, I'm still, I'm still in a lot of ways living my childhood, you know, <laughs> but now, you say, yeah, but now I get paid for it. Are... Now I get paid for it. <laughs> well, and, and the South, you know, I, I mentioned him before we, we got onto the recording that I spent some time, actually did my master's degree at a university of South Carolina. So I spent a couple of years uh, down in the South. And when I think about sports down there, uh, I think about baseball and, uh, and football and all of that. So, right. you know, you, you, you have ended up dancing your way into endurance sports. Was yeah. that your it wasn't sporting ever, background? No, as a, no, oh no, I was going to play for the Dallas <laughs> Cowboys. That was my plan. Well, you know, I, there, there you was go. no, there was my only concern at age seven or whatever was that, you know, I, I was r religious. I grew up in the religious family. And so I was thinking, well, how am I going to go to church on Sunday and still be ready for the game? Cause they start like at noon, you know, how do they do that? You know, So I was trying to <laughs> figure out how I was going <laughs> to, I was going to, you know, make sure God didn't get mad at me. And then at the same time, get my pads on and be ready to play for the Dallas Cowboys. So that's, that was my understanding of it all. Uh, but then of course I realized after a while that, you know what, uh, this body is actually not built particularly great for that sport. And, and those guys are 
big, you know, <laughs> and I'm not. So anyway, but I played high school football. I was just good enough to be like all conference, you know, but not better. So my career at some point, I thought I was going to try to walk on for a college team, called my dad mm -hmm. and told him my great idea. Walk on means, you know, you don't have a scholarship. You're just going to go out there and get, yep. yourself, get the crap kicked out of you, you know, for nothing. And, uh, my dad said, son, do you, do you think you have a snowball's chance and you know where to ever get paid doing this? I said, no. He said, well, I think you need to focus on training your brain and not playing football. <laughs> you know, and so and, uh, that was the end of that dream. You know? <laughs> and he was, so, so of how course did, he was right. You know, <laughs> And so how did, endurance sports come into the, yeah, the whole so puzzle i was you know i was working in a fitness center in the summer i was as a strength coach because i <laughs> i gotta tell you mm -hmm. the only time i ever left the united states before i was 30 years old to go to norway was to go to the soviet union of all places as a student at age 20 to study their training methods because i was a sophomore in college i was studying exercise science and this opportunity to go on this study tour came up in 1986 and so I found myself on a jet plane to Moscow. And, uh, and so I was into, you know, strength training again, because I was still trying this, I had this mental idea of getting stronger and bigger and all this stuff, and more powerful and being a better sprinter and blah, blah, blah. And uh, so I was teaching kids and, and one morning we're out on wet grass at about 7.30 in the morning and, and I slipped doing a, a, a repeat jump and I tore my patellar tendon. And uh, mm -hmm. had to have an operation, have to have just hammer, just hammer and chisel surgery, as they called it. You know, it was the old school and put that mm -hmm. tendon back on the bone. And and the rehab involved cycling. So I started cycling mm -hmm. on, a, on a trainer and then I borrowed a bike. And six weeks later, I jumped in a citizen's race, you know, a local race. And I got third. Uh, and and I was like, hmm maybe I can do this. <laughs> maybe I need to give up my, you know, maybe this is a safer way. You know, of course, cycling is not that safe either, but that was the start is uh, I realized maybe I had a bit of, uh, you know, just enough talent for it that it could be fun. And so that's how it got started. You, you didn't have the muscles, but you had the heart. So uh, the cardiovascular <laughs> system, you had yeah, the engine right. maybe. But uh, so, so, so last question on the grounding for, for the listeners. Give us the, the catalyst of heading to Europe, going to Norway, Scandinavia, which you're now based out of, obviously. So uh, that was at 30 years of age. How did what, that come What am out? I going to say, man? Blonde hair, blue eyes, a girl. Uh, there you go. It was, I mean, <laughs> it's just that the Scandinavian, that's what they do is they send them out. They send out the Scandinavian women and, and that's, it's their, it's their trickery. They re, they recruit you. And so uh, mm -hmm. I met a, I met a blonde, a woman at, at a sports medicine conference. She was studying sports science as well. And I don't think it was, I don't think it was love at first sight for her at all. But, uh, <laughs> anyway, she, <laughs> I was persistent and, and we ended up, uh, I ended up moving to Norway about a year and a half later after I finished my PhD. Yeah. Awesome. So that's how it works. Well, uh, so I've, I've coming up on half my life now as a, as a, uh, reserve Norwegian or whatever I am. Yeah. Well, I, um, I went the other way. So I grew up in East London, but, uh, came over here in 92. So, uh, have, uh, have been over here ever since. And I, I sort of did the reverse actually. I got married to a, uh, 
Scandinavian descent, but Montana. That was uh, ah, my wife's okay. Montana. Yeah. So that's a uh, real but American. You've retained, so you, you retained your dialect to a certain, to a large extent. So yeah, exactly. I mean, my my brothers would say that I've got a very polluted, dirty English, but uh, yeah. but yeah, no, I still uh, still still got a little bit of East London in me and all of that good stuff. So uh, <laughs> let, let let's let's get into the meat and potatoes of it then a little bit, and I think that. Uh, not not to start too too basic but probably best known for yourself as a physiologist and all of your work that, that is so expensive but let's call it your 80 20 model of performance or what we might label polarized training yeah. so for the listeners who are not familiar with that model can you just give us a really brief overview of this intensity distribution in training well, you know, I grew up in the States. I was trained in the States and, and, and I read the literature as a student and, and basically the literature was built up around uh, a lot of studies that lasted six to eight weeks that involved students that were relatively untrained. They were active but untrained and they would do, basically they would get on bicycles or on treadmills. They would run for about 45 minutes a day, about five days a week at about their threshold and they would get better. And so that became kind of the standard model or for best practice in endurance training based on taking people, young people from essentially untrained to relatively trained, that transition. And then, you know, training at about 80% of max heart rate or something like that for 45 minutes, it works. Uh, no doubt about it. And, and, but then, mm -hmm. I, so then you get that perception. And then also there was this no pain, no gain conceptualization that we grew up with as Americans. A lot of, a lot of people did a lot of interval training, you know, and more was better, harder, better. And then I go to the, Nor I come to Norway, which Norway has a great tradition in, in endurance sport, having produced, you know, cross country skiers and runners and all, you know, all kinds of kayak paddlers and all this stuff. And, and, Absolutely. uh, and so I started watching them train and I, you know, of course was seeing some get tested and then making observations, reading what was being said in the newspaper as I learned the language. And, and I was like, Hmm, this is not matching up with what I have learned because they are training very differently, even though they're these monsters of VO2 at 90 mLs per kg. I mean, just absolute Titans. They're like talking about how most of the time they're just out in the forest for two hours at talking pace, you know, and then occasionally they're doing some serious hardcore interval sessions. Yes, but but there was this yin and yang that I was seeing, whereas I was always thinking it was in the middle. It was threshold, you know. And and so then I said, I gotta I gotta get into this. I gotta try to get into the weeds here and started measuring and started trying to quantify. And this was pre training pre peaks pre digital tools, so we had to do it the old fashioned way. Um, uh, but we we did some studies, we did some observations and, and started collecting data from different sports and just started seeing a consistent pattern. And it then got kind of congealed down or into this basically saying they're training in this polarized fashion. They're actually not doing too much training in that in those middle intensities. They're very intent. They have intent. They have purpose in the way they distribute their training and. A lot of it's at below their first lactate turn point. You know, it's 1.5 millimolar lactate for the lactate measures. It's 65, 70% of heart rate at best. I mean, it's talking pace. It's pretty darn comfortable for them. But they may be, mm -hmm. they may be there for running for hour and a half, two hours, or skiing for three, or cycling for four, right? 
And then they're doing some of these interval sessions at 90% of max heart rate and collecting minutes. You know, they're doing the work. And so that was this pattern that was that emerged going to the the athletes to see how have, what are they doing to win. And so that was both uh, enlightening to see that, well, they're not doing what we thought they were going to be doing. And the other was is that to, to realize, you know what? They are experimental. They are, it's a laboratory. They are operating as scientists in a way, trial and error, experimentation, coach and athlete, collecting data over time, knowledge is accruing, and they have figured some stuff out that the sports scientists just didn't know because they were not, they were in the wrong damn laboratory uh, with mm-hmm. working with the wrong subjects, you know, looking at the wrong time part of the time frame or not wrong, but, but different. They were collecting a yep. different set of data that was relevant for a different population. Let me be more fair and say it that way. Uh, and so that's, that was, you know, and that's where I'd been the rest of my career. I did never intend this to happen, but it just kind of did. Well, it's interesting. You know, I, I grew up, you're going to laugh when you hear this. I grew up a swimmer and uh, byproduct of late 80s, early 90s, there's perhaps no sport that was uh, probably more guilty of sitting at moderately strong to strong. In fact, I we followed an 80-20 rule, 80% of it just really hard and 20% desperately recovering. So <laughs> <laughs> probably, the, yeah. probably the complete reverse yeah. of, uh, of that. And, uh, and I was very, very fit, but goodness me, was I fatigued. And, yeah. and of course, right at the end of the year, the classic summer story, when you came up to peak for any sort of major championship, results didn't improve because you just didn't have the the, uh, the you were limping in, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, exactly. So, so uh, it, it, you talked about the Norwegians and the and you know that the, they do have a, a wonderfully rich history of these elite athletes. A lot of listeners are that listen to this show are highly enthusiastic, very goal driven, but and there is a big but to this. They are time starved. So, in other words, they're seeking their sporting performance gains while also managing a really chaotic and busy normal life. So if people have greatly reduced training hours, so let's just make it up a cross-country skier skiing 20 hours a week, a bike Mm. rider riding 25 hours a week, Mm. someone's training six, seven, eight, up to 10 hours a week. How does the 80-20 model apply to them? Are there any adjustments? Essentially, it still applies. And that's what we, you know, obviously that that was the obvious question. That was one of the some of the first questions that emerged is, yeah, you're just trying you're, you're studying all these, you know, training monsters. And, and but this is not relevant for us. But then studies were done, intervention studies uh, where you could actually manipulate the training of, you know, age groupers. And it turned out that they got better when they got control of their intensity distribution, even though they were training six hours a week um, or, you know, six, five to seven. And, and so I, I think at least down to say five hours a week, we can say that it still makes sense. It still can be demonstrated that had, paying attention to the avoiding the most common error, which is regression towards the mean intensity. That's what that is what age groupers almost always tend towards. Uh, 
is that mm -hmm. every workout either with the intent to go easy gets too hard or with the intent to go hard, they don't have the energy to do it there. And so everything ends up in the middle, that black hole of training intensity. And this is true for age groupers. In some ways, it's almost more prevalent, I would say, for the age groupers. Because if you're only training eight hours a week or 10, then you can survive that. You can survive doing a lot of that threshold work. You won't thrive, but you will survive. Uh, and so I think we have a lot of that going on, but if you're training 25 hours a week, then you basically cannot do all of those 25 hours at threshold intensity. So there is a certain degree of self-organization that starts to emerge as the training volume goes up, right? So they have to get that right, or they just fall apart. Whereas these age groupers, these so-called time crunched athletes, they they sit where they can do it. They can do they can make a lot of mistakes to be to put it that way. They can do a lot of things suboptimally. I, I think there's a there's an emotional component to it as well, because if you're a professional athlete with limitless training hours, it's it's easier to emotionally say, like firstly, physically, as you say, it's practically impossible to just go hard. 25 hours a week unless you're a swimmer where it's non-weight bearing and so you really destroy the system if you suddenly are training eight hours or 10 hours i think that there's a i've got to optimize this i've really got to maximize it because i don't have many hours and so they end up lifting the bottom which of course suppresses the top well um, and, and optimization is great and i get it i want to optimize too i train about now about 11 hours a week i think and um you know, an upper would be 14 and low would be eight, but I'm pretty consistent nowadays because I'm 55 and I don't have kids and I don't have coaching duties and all this stuff. So I can be, I'm more consistent now training than I was for, have been for years, but, and I want to optimize, uh, I want to get the best out of my training and we all do, but optimization is often interpreted or defined as intensive intensification mm -hmm. in in by age groupers they they miss they conflate optimal with intense they double down on intensity as and 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 remember i've, I've said this to, in other situations i said look every time you go out to train you basically once you've decided what the modality is uh then it's it's a question of am I intensifying or am I extending today? Intensify or extend? Because those are the two components of the endurance machinery. Those are the two components of the endurance prescription. So they both, you know, it's it's both a methodology and a result. And so, but but it is somehow in the heads of athletes that the intensification feels more productive it feels more uh i don't know taking the bull by the horns whereas the lo somewhat longer more painstaking process of extending is not fun it's not sexy and it's not macho but it's damn necessary if you really want to be any good if you really want to optimize then you have to make trade-offs you need the extending workouts 
that's part of the optimization. And that's what we got to get through the heads of our age groupers is it is needed that if you know that some days you need a two hour workout instead of those damn 75 minute workouts that you think are that's long. That's a long endurance workout. It's not games just getting started. That's when the physiology begins. That's when the adaptive signals really become, you know, now we're ready. Now you've done the lead in to get to the part of the workout that actually induces some really important adaptions. Okay. You know, when I'm on the bike, it, the first two hours, that's the, that's the prelude, right? It's the third hour that makes me fitter. And so we have to get there. Now, then you say, well, yeah, but I don't have time. Yeah, hell yeah, you do. You've made the choice. You have time, but you've got to make choices about how you block out this training. And, and you may can be more optimal in your training by reducing from six days a week to five. And then taking that six day, making your partner happy by giving them your, your attention, but then saying, okay, I'm going to stretch my workout one extra hour on Saturday. Is that okay? Yeah, that's good. I, I'll take that trade off. You with me? That's optimization, folks. That's how you get this done is you, you need some intense days, but you need, you need the longer sessions. And so if, if I'm working with age groupers that have, you know, their time crunch, first of all, I'm going to just be honest with you. Let's face it, folks. We're, we're, we all have the same amount of time. We're not time crunch. We're activity dense. We're, we're trying to squeeze more activity into the same amount of time, but that's a choice. And we're making that choice because we're living in the luckiest time on the planet because we actually can. We can at age 45 not avoid having to go out and kill tigers. And, you know, and we can actually have extra time to do things like run triathlons, you know. So, so I do think we need to, I think, I, I guess I just would prefer that we act or we have this discussion from a position of positivity and say, look, these are choices we are blessed to be able to make, that we have the health and the vitality and the, the, the economy to be able to devote quite a few hours a week to something fully frivolous in the big scheme of things, right? Perfect. Yep, 100%. <laughs> so, so that's the glass half full way of looking at this. And then once we've agreed on that, then let's say, okay, now let's optimize and let's say, you know, okay, you're going to be training somewhere between seven days a week and four or five days a week. But sometimes in that balancing act, it can be better to, to negotiate from a position of saying, I'll, I'll, I'll take fewer days, but, but give me more time on a couple of those days, dear husband or wife. Perfect. Well, I, I think that as a platform off of that, I want to dive into stress because we we started to. I wonder whether I was going to get you philosophical today, and uh, and uh, we did for it pretty quickly. But um, I talk to athletes and coaches a lot about stress in the broadest context, and I, I think that one of the things I see is that athletes have a tend to fall into a trap of having a very narrow focus around training load versus what we might label life stress. So things like 
good or poor nutrition being a use stress or a negative stress, sleep, mm. a huge one, particularly in the in the Western world, work stress, financial stress, etc. Right. So, so I'd love your lens on how to think about stress stress in life relative to training load. Well, you know, Hans Selye, this was the guy who kind of brought stress into the mainstream as a term way back 70, I guess, years ago, more uh, Hungarian uh, medical mm -hmm. doctor who did most of his career in Canada. And so, uh, and he's the one that uses term and a lot in, in medicine and psychology. And he struggled with it too, because stress is both a product and it's, it's noun, it's verb, it's, it's, it's result, it's, it's, you know, an adjective stressful, you know, so it's all these different things and you can, you just get all confused on which side of this are you on. Uh, but the reality is, is stress just represents this situation when the, we are confronted with, a, with a, either a work task or repetitive situation that where our, uh, the demands do not feel like they're in line with our capacity. So that's the mismatch. And that mismatch can be real or uh, imagined. But either way, it's stressful. It can be, and it's, and it all go, and, and our brains and our physiology is evolutionarily constructed. It's not designed for all the, the nuance of stress from work versus stress from the family versus stress from the the, the training, it just says, it just turns on the warning lamps. It's a, it's a one size fits all uh, system. And so it, it all goes into one pot. The, the, the stress accumulates. And so we, there's, you know, when you say, well, now you're just kind of going off the deep insider, but, but the reality is, is there's research to show this, for example, collegiate athletes, you can just dim and you can show that they respond more poorly to training when they are in exa heavy exam periods. Physiologically, the, 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 the hormones, the stress measurements, the, the physiological responses are less robust and adaptive in periods where another source of stress is acting on them. If that makes sense. I mean, we, so this is real. It's quantifiable. It's not just some mumbo jumbo from the psychologist, you know, and I, and I get it that, that you know, I'm a, I'm a mm -hmm. quantitative guy too, but the reality is the, the most, I guess I was speaking with some other sports scientists. We're all, we were three physiologists, you know, one, we've all did careers in different countries and, and we all, we've all become hobby psychologists. You know, we're trained as hardcore physiologists, mechanistic numbers, you know, and we're all talking about the brain because the more you do this stuff, the more you are forced to, if you're going to be useful as a scientist and if effective as an athlete or coach, you have to be holistic. You have to acknowledge these connections, these inseparable mind-body aspects, and stress is one of those bridges. May from a from a conceptualization standpoint, it's a it's a bridge between what's going on in the body and what's going on up in the brain. Um, and so, if if you you ignore it at your peril, you know, and you and, couldn't agree more. 
and and then there are stress reducing activities like sleep like nutrition like a certain degree of I, I, I won't call it meditation but but just tools mental tools to reflect and and compose and you know I, I love this like one of my favorite side activities which will surprise some is that I love watching MMA you know, mixed martial arts. I watch UFC, you know, and I, I, I admit it, you know, I like watching these people try to beat the crap out of each other. But because one of the reasons I like it so much is because there is order in that chaos. There is calmness in a very chaotic situation. And when you, when you listen to the best athletes, the best performers in that brutal sport that looks like anything but something that a triathlete or a cyclist would really want to get into, but you, you listen to them and they say that I have to keep my mind calm in the chaos. And, and I thought, yeah, that's true. That boy, Imagine being able to do that when someone's trying to choke you out. Well, you know, if you can do that, if they can do that, if they can be calm under those conditions, then maybe we can learn from them as, as athletes, as, as time crunched athletes of, of, of finding that balance, you know, with one foot in control and one foot in chaos. And, and that's kind of where we are as, as busy people, right? Uh, but finding calmness, well, that's stress reducing. That's that's part of that package of saying, how do I control? How do I, you know, respect both the stress ors, but also the stress reducing aspects of my life that I can tap into and then achieve balance. Now I'm getting super philosophical, but to be honest, it is the the psychology and the physiology blend together. I th and I think it's important. I'll, I'll hold hands with you on that one all the way. So uh, it's it's terrific. <laughs> um, it it really is. You know, I thought I thought you were going to say that your your MMA uh, retreat was the place to give you space and capacity. And I I, I was feeling really validated because my. My edition of that is Scandinavian crime thrillers. So uh, <laughs> I, I, it's my, my wife says, well, I, I won't, I won't deny those. it. It is. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever heard of the nothing box. The, there's a, a thing yeah. that the comedian talks about how men have a nothing box. Well, I, I will admit that, yeah, I can definitely go into my nothing box and watch MMA. But I do, I, I like to also think that it has a certain intellectual appeal uh, because it, I find that, you know, it, to put humans in that, that humans choose to put themselves in that situation, which is kind of the most, the closest we have to a life and death kind of struggle that doesn't actually end in death um, and, and do it on purpose. And then, you know, the psychology of all that. You know, it's it's interesting to go on a, a small tangent <clears throat> and we you, you may have even heard some of this research, but some years ago, Red Bull were doing a, uh, they were very interested in neural feedback and uh, and the ability mm. to focus within chaos. And they were, they went on a project. I can't remember who the lead scientist was, but they went on a project to look at athletes across sports as well as special forces. So it was U.S. based Navy SEALs, etc. 
And uh, and one of my athletes was actually included a woman called Meredith Kessler. Really, really. Um, yeah, I've heard of the, the name. Exceptional, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, exceptional, um, exceptional triathlete. Very storied. Actually came from financial services and really late in, has in she life. Been, has she been doing some Zwift races too? She has been doing yeah. some Zwift <laughs> races. I've, yeah, I've, so, I've uh, watched her. I've, watched <laughs> Zwift. I've, I've actually watched a few Zwift races. So that's funny. I, I knew the Incredible. Name. Incredible athlete, but uh, anyway, long story. We won't go down the rabbit hole. But the results of this that she had this unbelievable ability that, as chaos and environment and surrounding stress, distractive stress amplified around her, her actual ability to focus was off the charts. the The only other person that was actually there, two of them sort of rose above, and one was the the lead of the uh, the Navy SEALs, the lead instructor, mm. and they had this capacity. and And obviously, there's a there's an innate ability there, but that was obviously one of her her secret weapons. That in a, in an event like Ironman, when there's so much going on and you're having to assess the whole time, as she got under stress, she actually managed to double down rather than panic. Right, right. So, yeah. Well, Dave Martin was one of those guys. He, he worked at the Australian Institute of Sport. He's an American guy, but he spent a lot of his career in, the, in, in Australia. And uh, he, towards the end of that period in Australia, he was working with uh, combat sports. And, and he was mm -hmm. tasked with combat sports. You know, he had been doing cycling and all that. And he, he did the same. He went to, he says, all right, I got to learn from the people who actually or in life or death struggle, where, who actually can get themselves killed if they make a mistake. So he went to the what's what you know the parallel of the Navy SEALs in Australia to learn from them for the same reason, you know, is 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 calm and chaos and and this one meter rule, you know, is focus on what is one meter in front of you when things get tough and and solve those problems, you know, like Meredith Kessler, you know, bring it down take care of what you control and uh that's they're very good at that it's really interesting so i, I want to come up a level and before i ask this question i would just throw out there like bait a single word periodization and uh, oh, we boy. won't go there <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly this this might be the end of the show here but uh um, a purple patch. We've we've got a saying. We we have many sayings. I'm English. I like my silly sayings. But embrace the journey. And um, and a big part of the reason that I talk about that is that I really believe that the in the journey of endurance sports, that's where all of the lessons and the rewards, chasing your performance, they really arise from the journey more than the destination. Even though we love the accolades and we love to create world champions and everything else. So with that said, as a little background, I'd love your summary on. What you might label some of the common mistakes of thinking for athletes or coaches planning training over the course of the year or even multiple years? Well, you know, in the in the background, you told me that a lot of your listeners are um, leaders. They work in in the private sector and they have these jobs, and and they they're all about planning. I mean, if you're a if you're a corporate leader, I, I was a university leader for eight years. Uh, you know, first with 200 employees and then with 2000 that I was involved at, you know, I was in that, at that level of uh, planning and so forth. And, and we're all talking strategy and KPIs and trying to predict the future and everything. And, and in university research and university discussions and sports discussions, what we end up finding is, is how overrated strategy is off very often. 
you know, it just, it's a wonderful profession. There's a hell of a lot of money going on. They're consulting on strategy. But then when you actually look at the effects that the predict prognostic correct, you know, how correct the prognoses were, how they end up being not very good, not very often, uh, you know, and so, and it's the same in training is that this idea that dates back to, you know, John Keeley did a great job of describing this. If we go back to the manufacturing revolution where you start automating uh, production processes where you, you know, the, ha the parts are all the same Ford and, and the bicycle industry were, were very good at it. the sewing machines, Singer sewing machine. I think they were very good at it. They were early on, they actually made bicycles in the United States. And, and it was about, then you, then you say, well, if, if you have a repetitive procedure, then you can really plan, you structure, you period, periodize the activities. There's a, there's a logical framework, a time frame, and a, and a chronicity or a, a, an ordering effect. If you do something out of order, then you flub up the whole thing and you, you screw up the, you know, your, your production. Well, and, and then they try to move that into training with periodization models that are just in, in, one of the first things I say to people is what's the difference between periodization and variation, right? Variation is important. Uh, but what's periodization? Well, periodization is ordered variation. You know, that's, that's the conceptualization of periodization is that if I get the, this line, these, these different blocks of training, these periods of training and emphasis up in the right order, and do the right amount for the right number of weeks before transitioning to the next one, that the sum of all this is going to be much better and very predictable. And I will come to the starting line at the best version of myself. Right. And that's the, that's the, the, what they're selling you. <laughs> but the reality is biology is not that simple. Uh, number one, for the first thing you, you can't, in, in a biological setting where you have half-lives and you have turnover of cellular machinery, you can't just say, well, I'm going to do this for six weeks and then I'm going to stop doing this and start doing this other thing for six weeks. And then that thing I was doing the previous six weeks is still going to be there because it's going to go away. So, so the, the, the conceptual, you know, linear periodization had never was, it was, it was dead from the start. Uh, from a biological perspective, because biology is not the same as building a, a garage at the, on the side of your house, you know, which would, that would, you would definitely have an ordering effect. You would want to pour the foundation first or else you're, a, you're a pretty dumb, but, but you know what I'm saying? So by you have, you have to keep doing everything all the time to a, to a considerable extent. And then you have, you can shift emphasis a little bit, but it's not nearly as pretty as it looks in those plans. It's not nearly as clear. And we, we went into this, we've, we've quantified the training of champions of gold medal winners and looked at the one, a one year period of training, before their gold medal, all the way down to the day before, you know, what did they do? And, and it's, it's just not that it's mostly just doing the work, you know? Yeah, there's some shifts in emphasis. There's a bit more interval training in certain periods. There's a bit, but if you look at it on a big scale, you think, well, there wasn't a lot of difference between what they were doing in May and what they were doing in July and what they were doing in October. They were training a lot the whole time and they were doing some high intensity work the whole time. 
but they were mostly mm-hmm. doing low intensity work though. You know, so I mean, that's, that's what we kept saying is, well, this, this is not rocket science. This is mostly, it's about consistency. It's about r- listening to the body. It's about making small adjustments. It's about tuning in, you know, and yes, there is some, um, some periodization in the sense of there is, you know, we're going to add certain kinds of workouts in, at specific periods. Don't get me wrong. Uh, Eisenhower, I think said, you know, planning is critical, but plans are useless. Uh, and I, and I think that what he's trying to say is of course, the process of planning is very instructive. It's very important to think through what are my key events, step back from those, try to, you know, get a basic framework for your training on in place. But then understanding that the day-to-day process will be somewhat chaotic. Their life will happen and you will your success will be uh, partly a function of your ability to be consistent in that chaos and make the small adjustments along the way, listening to your body for one, the internal signals, but also being, you know, uh, what should I say, living in the, the external world that you live in and, and, and dealing with it. And neither of those, neither of those are conducive to following some boxed plan that you buy for ninety nine ninety nine from, you know, training is us. It doesn't work. It's, um, Life is not a spreadsheet. There is a reason that is a uh, one of our saying. You can uh, you can map it out, but life is not a spreadsheet. No. So I think that flows really nicely into a onto land that is uh, I'm, I, I I tread onto with trepidation because <laughs> I think that we could do a whole show on this data metrics analysis of performance data yeah. and um, and you know it, it's a it's a broad blanket that we're throwing here. So. What what I am less focused on here is the the in, in my mind obviously really good thing which is the capture of data and the analysis of data. I'm talking more about the rise in the dominance of in training and racing as well as outside power meters, heart rate, GPS, glucose monitoring, now sleep tracking, all of the gadgets and toys that. Uh, the athletes of all levels and, and seemingly actually the lower level of the athlete, the more that they're, they are tied to their gadgets. And so I want to talk about data and metric, metrics through that lens a little bit. And uh, I'm going to force you to, to play a game, good, bad and ugly, to help us uh, be concise. So if you can, and this is in the pursuit of ultimately us coming to a place of recommendation of how an athlete should build their relationship with these gadgets, tools, and metrics. So first, maybe you could give me the good side of what these gadgets provide. Two, two three, four things of, you know, be the, be the promoter, argue, argue onto the side of these things are great for endurance athletes because. Well, it's a toolbox. It, it, you know, we have more tools in the toolbox than we've ever had, which, which does give potential. But it only gives potential if we know how to use them and know when to use the hammer and when to use a screwdriver and when to stay home and not not be on the roof that day. Uh, and and so that's the the good and the ugly is both the good is the tools and the ugly is the tools too. So they are two sides of the same coin. 
and and I'm a scientist and I, you know, I, I measure stuff. I good grief. I've measured blood lactate up in my home, my home cycling room up in the loft in, in the last few days. You know, sometimes I do that. I have power, I have heart rate, but what has happened and even among the highest performance circles in, in recent years, we've gone from essentially a paucity of data to an overflow, uh, you know, just a flood of data. And there is paralysis by analysis. Of course, mm -hmm. leaders, you know, in, in companies will appreciate this as well is, you know, you, you, how many key performance indicators can you juggle at one time before none of them are key at all and they're all chaotic? So, so that's, that's the problem is, is when you start trying to measure everything, you realize you're not doing very good at well, at, you're not doing well at keeping focused on anything uh, because it sends you in different directions. So I think it's the same thing is, is, you know, a fire pilot, they have these heads up displays, right? Uh, the old days they were just seeing out the window and, but modern fighter technology, there's so much information. So the, the fighter pilot needs to have their eyes up, not down, looking at a bunch of dials or else they're going to crash and burn. So they need to some simultaneously have their eyes up and looking forward into the realities of what's in front of them, but get certain pieces of information that they can use to help in decision-making or, you know, landing the plane or whatever. And that's the heads up display that they have. And it's, there's imposed, superimposed a few numbers, but not too many because then they're going to be in trouble because they won't be able to handle all the information. And it's the same for us is if I'm, if I'm a, as a sports scientist or a coach, I want to give my athlete a, a heads up display, you know, I want, and, and, and I've got to decide on the minimum number of metrics that improve or inform our conversation as coach athlete. Now, if you're a self-coached athlete, then you're, you're conversing with yourself, <laughs> but that's okay. And you need information in that, in that, that solo conversation. But either way, we need just a few tools, but you need to decide which ones work for you. And then don't get pulled in every direction. You said something about these elite athletes. What I find is that often the elite athletes use fewer metrics. They're less interested in the metrics than the age groupers. Mm -hmm. the, you know, sure. You'd be surprised how many elite athletes, they say, ah, I don't even use heart rate. I, I I don't know what my VO2 max is. How many Kenyan world record holders have actually, you know, how many of them give a crap about their lactate profile? You know, how many of them know? So it's, there's a lot of champions that have become champions while without measuring much of anything uh, in terms of these fancy metrics. Let's keep that. Let's make sure we are clear on that. But I like them. And, and I, I talk about a Trinity. You know, I grew up in the South where the, the Holy Trinity, you know, but so it's still, <laughs> it's still part of me, but in the Holy Trinity for me in a training monitoring perspective is that, yeah, I want to know, I think it's useful to have a reasonable idea about pace or power, that external workload, right? And, and it's neutral, but we are trying mm -hmm. to achieve some workload. And then I like to know some physiology, which is my internal cost 
I'm trying to connect the external workload to what it is costing me physiologically to perform across time because that changes even during the work, during the, during the workout, during the race. So I want to look both at that static relationship from testing, but also how it's changing during a workout. And so how do I get it at heart rate's a great tool. If it's calibrated, if we understand it, uh, blood lactate can be useful. And then there's a bunch of other possible tools, you know, but those are the, probably still the big two. Uh, and then Mm -hmm. we play with other ones along the way. And then that third leg of the, of the Trinity of that stool, you know, takes three legs to, to balance of chair is, is the perception. How's this, uh, you know, keep the brain in the game is how, how am I feeling? How does this feel? Am I in flow? Is the relationship between the external and the internal workload, does it feel right? Or does something feel wrong today? And then having the uh, respect and the trust in that perception to actually listen to it. When it is telling you, hmm, it's not right. You're, the watts are what they are, but your body's working harder than it should be. Uh, this is a signal that you need to listen to. So those are the three, you know, I, I say, give me some external workload indicator, perception, you know, pace, power, whatever. Give me some physiology and give me and keep my brain in the game with some kind of a perceptual metric. It, it, it can be qualitative or quantitative. You know, sometimes we use something called RPE, perceived exertion, put a number to it. How hard was this workout today? Or what is the feeling, the acute feeling right now? Are you a 16 out of 20? Are you a 12? You know, but just be consistent with it. Use the same tools. And one of the fine, one of the things about that makes scientists look smart is they just do the same thing often enough that they really understand it, you know, and, and measure the same. If you measure the same darn thing over and over on yourself, you start to see patterns. If you do it correct, if you do it consistently, I mean, I know my, I know my heart rate responses so well now because I stare at them. I look at them that I, that it's a canary in the, in the coal mine. I know, oh, today, today, I'm, you know, heart rate's just not coming up like it should. I, I'm tired. I need to back off, you know? And, and so consistency in using a few metrics is far superior as a, heads up display for decision informing good decisions than uh you know a shopping cart full of the latest the latest gadgets all that that and, never makes you better and and i want to like smart smart decisions relative to the day as well and i think that that's a wonderful way to think about it the trinity because uh what what often happens is the pass fail mindset of a workout. So earlier on, you talked about training occurring within the chaos of life and and the chaos of other training load, of course, coming out of the weeds. And many athletes, I find, get fall into the trap of looking as at the single predictor of success or failure being, did they hit the same power as two weeks ago when they did a similar workout? Right, and if right. they didn't, it's an absolute failure. And that that's a critical component. So, so with that, if and when you're prescribing training, uh, I know how I do it, how I think about it, and and let's focus more on the twenty percent, the harder intervals, the uh, the very mm. strong intervals. 
how do you like athletes to think about I'm going to do X number of intervals and they're, they're very, very challenging. Is it of, of the Trinity, is it a combination of all three? Is it built with intent? Is it chasing right. a power? Right. Let's, let's build the bridge to that side of it. Yeah, I think there's, it's a, the, the, now we're going to, I'm going to use the, the science phrase, it depends, uh, which is a cop out, I know, but it does depend on a few things. I, I think if we're early season building phase, prep phase, I like the Carvona idea. You know, he, he talks about a guy that works with Kenyan athletes and he, mm-hmm. he he's very um, internal workload focused in the early period, you know, meaning feeling, how's it feel? You know, I'll prescribe four times eight minutes to my daughter who is a distance runner. And, and if it's early phase, we're, I just say, see and run on feeling. I want you, I don't want you to worry about speed. I don't want you to worry about the treadmill speed or the, pace right now i just want you to feel and get into that kind of what feels like 90 percent. okay and and that way you're built it's like you've got built-in shock absorbers because one day 90 percent is going to actually you know is tomorrow's 92 and it's yesterday's 88 and so it varies a little bit but it doesn't it doesn't get mentally it's it's mentally um more sustainable i would say Mm -hmm. to to use a a more of a feeling based or internal load based perception in, in those early stages. And then, yeah, as we approach, if, if she's approaching a 10,000 meter race or a half marathon or something where we, let's face it, we've got a goal time. She'd like to set a PB or da, da, da. Then we're going to start, then we're going to be more pace focused. You know, we're going to start zeroing in on race pace. And now it ends up, we, we use that, I talked about intensify versus extend. A lot of people think that it's the, the only part of the interval prescription they can do something with is the, the intensity. But no, you, you, can, you can add time at pace. And that's a great adaptive approach. You know, so if, if for example, if I say, all right, I want you to do three times 2,000 meters or three times eight minutes. And then next next time we do this session, it's going to be four times eight minutes. And then maybe if, if things are going well, we, it, it will peak at five times eight minutes. You know, we're accumulating now 40 minutes of work at, at pace, at goal pace. And so, and then if you get there, then we say, well, let's, let's bump it up two-tenths of a kilometer per hour or, you know what I mean? Or, or, or mm-hmm, mm-hmm. three seconds per thousand or something, you know, two seconds, just small increments on the intensity, but, but extend, you know, and, and I think athletes, if athletes would use that combination, like stair steps, where the depth of the step is how long that the accumulation of time, how many, how many intervals you're going to do. And then you take small steps up in intensity, but we have a tendency to try to take too big a step up before you've consolidated the adaptations with um, a, a greater accumulated duration. Does that make sense? hundred percent. It, it makes common sense. <laughs> but, but it's, but it, there is just this default that we tend to try to solve the problem or, you know, that you say, well, I didn't hit the numbers that the, and the numbers are thinking is peak peak speed or whatever, you know, but, mm-hmm. but I want to accumulate, you know, I know that down the road when when the my athlete or your triathlon, my daughter, when she's running that half marathon, it's not going to be a problem the first 10 kilometers. Right. 
and she's gonna yep. the she's gonna be having to hold back. But yet, it's gonna become a problem the last seven kilometers, and so always we're preparing for that reality that it's it's not it's not. <laughs> It's not the speed that kills, it's the duration at speed, right? And so I want to build that into the training program. I want to extend at, at goal pace. And I want to use interval sessions to do that in a, in a very, uh, what should I say, a, a positive way. You know, a, a, and I want my athletes to, I, I feel like most interval sessions should be positive experiences. Because it, it is very, if, if they can very quickly lead to become destructive. Because you're confronting athletes with their, the, their limitations. And, and at, that, at that upper end of the human performance scale, there is day-to-day -day variation. That we don't notice normally because we normally are operating at such a, a low percent of true max. But when you start getting up towards that in the, in the fuzzy day-to-day -day variation well then you you put so much what should i say so much of your self-worth gets attributed to whether you were five watts over or five watts under the goal and that's just not in tune with the realities of your physiology your biology your variability uh, so if we can ease off on that a bit and and look at the bigger picture it, it it's it's i think it's both adaptive physiologically but it's also um healthier psychologically absolutely so so i'm i'm cognizant of time and but i do have a couple of questions we can sneak through because i i want to extend the conversation out to left field a little bit i want to go to life performance uh we, we've talked a lot about endurance performance I would love your perspective on the lessons of athletic training that can apply to someone that's just looking to improve their health, their energy in daily life. What, what can a regular sort of fitness enthusiast, someone that doesn't identify as an athlete necessarily, what lessons can they apply to themselves so that in the exercise they're doing, if you want to do that, uh, they can really yield better health, better energy? Yeah, well, I, you know, I think we tend to think of athletes, we see the final result and we don't see the process. And the process is not sexy. It's, it's, it's about consistency. And so if I'm speaking, you know, to a, a group of beginners or whatever, I just say, look, don't worry, just get out there. Get out there and try to get out there at first. Get out there every other day. If you can squeeze an extra day in, that's great. You know, but be consistent and, and reward yourself for just getting out the door because the hardest step you'll take will be the first step out the door. And it's all going to get better after that. I used to be a rower and I trained at 530 in the morning, man. The hardest thing, the hardest part of the day was the first step out of the bed at five o'clock in the morning every darn day you know, and, and it's seven o'clock on Saturdays and Sundays. But man, just that first step, it was just like, if I could just get that first step out the door, then it's going to be good. And, and, it, and, and, and continuity just, you know, and, and when you do things, anything you do fairly frequently, you get better at. And, and so 
I guess that's my message. And most of endurance training is about that. You know, we talk about all this, this hard interval sessions and special this and special that and that, but most of it, most of success is about deciding you, you're going to do this regularly and then f- doing it regularly. Uh, and, and that's, that's just, it, it, boy, that's not very sexy, but that is my finding after 25 years is it's, uh, it's the hardest and most important part of the process is just doing it day in, day out. The accumulation of minutes that I've pissed away standing on the side of a pool deck, standing there going, I just have to get in that cold water. And then finally, <laughs> get in it, and it always got better. <laughs> yeah. I still, oh, man. yeah, you always feel good when you're done, you know. And so that was that's what I would after a while tell me is, man, it's always going to feel good when I'm it, getting it's off. It's going to get better. That was yeah. it. It was. Uh, yeah. I had to have a lot of conversations with myself, and it's amazing how many times you have the same conversation. So, so, so let's finish with some quick hits, and uh, each one of these whole topics, but we're going to try and go quick hits as much as we can. Uh, because I have been asked to ask you these questions, so I'm going to squeeze them in, but they're going to be quick and dirty for you. First one, you're going to go, quick hits, you've got to be kidding me. Hot topic, <laughs> fasting. You're like, come on, that's 10 shows here, fasting. No, uh, I, I'm, I'm going to stay away from that. I mean, I yeah, yeah. Oh, I just believe that uh, you should do what feels right nutritionally. And, and for me, fasting is not it. Um, I that's that's my answer there the other people are perfect. much more much smarter than me perfect okay uh how, how about one a little less controversial i would say but uh you love endurance athletics i would love your very quick thoughts on strength training both for endurance athletes as well as those seeking performance <laughs> in life you know i was just having a conversation with a, a u23 like silver medalist in cross-country skiing and he says strength training i don't do any he says, I'm stiff as a board. I never strength train. And he's a sprinter. He is explosive as all get out. He never strength trains. And so, again, it was just another example of it is so variable. Some people swear by it. Some people swear at it. Some people are champions that say they were champions because of it. And some people say I, they would never do it and never have, never will. And they're also champions. So that has been my finding. Now, having said that, I think at my age, once you hit 50 plus, I do think there are such persuasive arguments for the health benefits of strength training that I would recommend doing it, doing some strength training, no matter what Uh, I do. I'm in it. I'm doing it two days a week and I'm not sure it makes me a better cyclist, but I do think it makes me healthier and, and more and more equipped to get older and, and, and be functional. I, I absolutely agree on that side. I'd even bring it forward in age for females uh, because of setting it up uh, perimenopausal uh, yeah, for their yeah, health yeah. and uh, lining yeah. it up earlier. Uh, okay, like, last question. Uh, well, actually, I'm afraid I've got two, so I'm going to so I'm going to go to the negative <laughs> first. What the, the very quick biggest mistakes that you believe endurance athletes and coaches make? Doubling down on intensity. That's Boom. unfortunately, it's still a big mistake as we tend to double down on intensity and we tend to, uh, if we have a bad day, we think we got to go harder. So it's self-punishment is our biggest mistake instead of a little bit of self-love and say, you know what, I'm having, I'm, my body's tired. Let's listen. Let's be kind to each other. Be kind to myself, you know, Perfect. because I know, I think here's, let me, let me deepen this a little bit. 
my operating position is, is that, you know, like with my daughter, I know she is motivated. I know she is, she comes to a workout, comes to a race with a shovel and she's ready to dig. So when my daughter says she's tired, I need to listen to that. And she needs to listen to it too. And that's what I want to say to athletes is, look, you're macho, you're toughness, you're a warrior. I get it. That doesn't make you weak to say, you know what? I need to be, I need to just have a glass of white wine tonight and not train. You know, that is smart. That's part of being a, an, an athlete, I believe. And so that the biggest mistake is we, we don't do that. We, we don't give ourselves a break, you know? What, what a wonderful way to end. Uh, I can't help but throw the purple patch saying in of it takes courage to recover. And uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I think that a part of being a warrior is having the courage to, uh, to step back. But I, I, uh, to, to, my, to my guys, my listeners that threw some questions at me when I let it sneak out that you were going to come on, I'm sorry that didn't get to all of them. But Dr. Well, Silas, just bring, Stephen, bring them on. I mean, we're on a roll here. I, and, I, and, <laughs> and I've already said today, I said, you know what? Today's I'm taking a rest day. I'm not going to train. So I'm not going to stress myself with trying to, you know, say, oh, get this podcast over so I can jump on the training, you know. So that's, you know, again, I, I'm ready. So bring them on if you want. All right. Well, there you go, guys. You were thinking this was going to end up. I'm going to. I'm going to. I'm going to go five more minutes. How's that? And we will. Uh, we will go from uh, from uh, from this. So this here's here's a question for one of our one of our coaches that uh, that I thought was interesting, which was with all of your research over the years, is there one thing or a cluster of things that maybe really surprised you the most in your findings that you would never have predicted? Oh, yeah. Well, I think initially as a scientist, I was really assuming there would be very subtle, a lot of subtle nuanced differences among the different disciplines. The runners would train differently than the, the cyclists and the skiers, the runners because of their foot strike patterns and blah, blah, you know, on the road. And I thought all this, and then I get into the weeds and I realized, no, it's just so there's such universalities here. Uh, we're seeing the same patterns from the rowers and the runners and the cyclists and the cross country skiers. And th that was a surprise. Maybe I shouldn't have been surprised, but I was assuming that there would be too much, there would be more nuance than there was. There, I mean, there is nuance, but it, but it's not in the basic structure of the training process and that intensity distribution. That that's been remarkably consistent. Awesome. But it's, uh, it's how, how about on a on a completely different spectrum? There, the world is uh, is evolving, and with the world and and technology, we have this real emergence of let's label it under machine learning AI, mm. and across many aspects of life, but certainly sports performance. And we see businesses now looking to inject this claiming AI featured or focused uh, coaching methodology. H how do you see that big bucket of technology impacting sports performance and coaching over the coming decade or so? Well, it's funny, you know, I, I'm actually sitting on the board, advisory board with a company that's trying to do exactly this right now. And I was skeptical to get into it because I think it is challenging. And, and I don't think AI is going to replace the, the, the human brain. But what we're seeing, you know, in, in my university leadership period, I was working with some AI issues and that. And, and 
generally what we were seeing was is that where AI has proven so far to to be useful or most useful has been in kind of these augmentation settings where it's human plus human expert plus AI reinforced with AI and then you get this you get a you get a uh, kind of a symbiosis where the strengths of the AI and the and the strengths of the 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 expertise person, you know, the doctor looking at mammograms or whatever, they they combine to give you a better outcome, greater sensitivity, better you know uh, flagging uh, potential errors. And I think that's where definitely I can see a potential that with the appropriate toolbox of metrics that are consistently measured that train the machine learning. Uh, or if we take it a step above that it actually gets to the level of a true artificial intelligence that in in the hands of the coach and athlete that r- continue to be autonomous and able to to um, calibrate and interpret the recommendations from the machine learning i think that can definitely be uh, a reality in in 10 years maybe 5 uh we're not there yet but but I, i'm what should I call it? I'm I'm skeptically optimistic, or I'm constructively skeptical, or somewhere in there. You know that that it's going to be hard, uh, but I think it is. It, I think there is a, a scope for 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 those two worlds to come together: the eye of the coach and the and the the data crunching learning of the AI. So, if uh, if I can give you a little bit of validation on your your perspective there it just so happens one of the guys that i'm good friends with and and actually coach uh, runs um or is high up at the uh ai at facebook interestingly and his overall i asked him exactly this same question not related to sports performance just just globally he said it's that side of it is only really effective when you align it with the human and that's where it can become really powerful to enable mm. you to to make smarter decisions, but very similar in that that perspective. So, um, so my last question, actually, I'm going to go back down into the weeds a little bit, and this is from one of our coaches, Mike, who uh, who went to us. So I'm going to read this question for you, and then we'll give a, a virtual handshake. And thank you very much. But uh, Mike's question is this: He said, Doctor Siler talks a lot about the difference between hard training and true anaerobic training. And basically, the endurance athletes really don't do true hard anaerobic training. So the AT training specifically, I'm curious. What I'm curious about is when and for what kind of athlete he uses AT training. And then what is specifically an example of true anaerobic word and how how it works and how would he use it for an athlete? Oh yeah, man! This you put that question at the end, <laughs> right at the a, end. Now, I just now I need now an hour have, because <laughs> the, the term anaerobic is is one of the most fundamentally misunderstood and misused terms in all of physiology and all of training. That's that's my starting point for all of this. Uh, and I, I and let me tell you, folks: every glucose molecule your body breaks down begins being broken down anaerobically okay 
<laughs> there it is. Every freaking molecule of glucose, meaning all of the glycogen you store and turn into glucose, you know, it breaks down into glucose, all of that blood glucose that comes into your muscle cells, all of it starts the first initial breakdown process is without oxygen, which is by definition anaerobic. And so fundamentally what we conflate is higher rates of glycolysis with higher degrees of anaerobiosis or anaerobicness or whatever you want to call it. And that's <laughs> a, just a fundamental misconception. Okay. And I'm sorry, it's not your fault. It's, it's science learns. And a hundred years ago, this term was used and, and, and they didn't have the tools to tease all this apart, but we do now. It's just that we keep using the same darn terminology. So my point to people is that even when you are huffing and puffing and you're doing a, uh, you know, a 20 minute FTP or a five minute, whatever, the vast, vast majority of the energy that you are transforming into mechanical is, is being fueled via oxidation, oxidative processes, meaning aerobic processes. And it's the only time that anaerobic processes are dominating in a sports setting is like a 200, 400 meter sprint. And even by the time you get to 400 meters, which is 40 some odd seconds, then the, the aerobic system is, is, is contributing a big chunk of that total energy. But a 200 meter, a 100 meter sprint, a hundred meter, a track finish. Yeah. Yeah. That's anaerobic, but climbing, you know, the, the, uh, Alpe d'Huez or the first, the last part of that and, and putting in a so-called sprint climbing up to 700, you know, getting up to 700 Watts and squeezing out what you got left, man, it's still just a drop in the bucket on the, on the scale of, of aerobic versus anaerobic. And so that's why when I say that, you know, aerobic, uh, endurance athletes don't do much true don't need to do much true anaerobic training. Now, a 400-meter specialist, yeah, they're going to do some anaerobic capacity work for sure. They're going to do, I've done them, the, you know, those puke sessions where <laughs> you've got 18 millimolar blood lactate or 21, or, you know, and it's, it's just nasty. But you can't even get there at the end of a four-hour race, at the end of a triathlon, you can't get there. You're not, you're never going to get that high on your lactate. You're never going to be able to go that deep anaerobically with the state of fatigue and the degree of glycogen depletion you have. So you can do anaerobic capacity work if you want, if that, if you want to take off at the start of the cycle for 400 meters and show what you got, but that's the only time you'll ever use it in a, in a triathlon. There you go. <laughs> well, that, that, was a, that was more of a rant than it was anything else. That, that, that was a rant. <laughs> <laughs> but, but that's the reality, folks. Is is we this anaerobic? You know, uh, I, someday I'm gonna I'm gonna create a really good lecture video on this because I I think it's so darn important. But but trust, just trust me, trust me. You don't need to do uh, you don't need to do repeat thirty second exhaustive sprints all out on a bike to get ready for a triathlon. So, Stephen, thank you so much. I, I really appreciate your time. It's been incredibly interesting and informative, but most importantly, it's been a whole 
whole bunch of fun as well. So thank you for yeah, taking your time. Out every once in a while, it's good to get to rant. So thank thank you as well. <laughs> you, you got to open it up. You got to release I it. Opened so, up uh, the, yeah. Since I'm not training today, you know, that's the highest my heart rate got all day was just now. So that's good. That's right. That's right. Hey, you're supposed to be recovering, letting the system come back <laughs> down. So uh, no, I think on behalf of all the listeners, I really appreciate you coming on and uh, greatly appreciate it. And thank you from everyone for all of your time. Thanks so much. No, thank you. Good luck. Good luck with all your training. Take care. Thanks. Bye. Wow. Guys, mind blown. All I can say is what an exceptional human being. And I hope that you drew from that discussion what I managed to draw from it. There is a special skill in having so much knowledge, but being able to distill that knowledge and make it really accessible to convert it into meaningful lessons for us. And so now that that discussion is over and you've listened to it, I can only suggest one thing, and that's go and take a break. Maybe have a nice cup of tea, but then come back and listen again. Then listen again. And then finally, listen again, because I promise you that the lessons will just keep flowing. I want to thank Dr. Siler and really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy, busy schedule. This is one for you guys to share broadly. If you know anyone who cares about performance, encourage them, give it to them, get them to listen, and most importantly, get them to embrace the lessons. Thank you so much. Stay safe. And until next time, take care. Thanks so much for listening. This has been the Purple Patch Podcast. If you like what you hear, we'd really appreciate it if you share with your friends and even go the extra mile and head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate and review the show. The Apple Podcast link is in the show notes. Your support and positive reviews go a huge way in increasing our visibility and also the exposure to time-starved people everywhere who want to integrate sport into life and ultimately thrive. Don't forget... You can also follow us on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. Cheers.